Hello, thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm Stephen Cook, the team rector of the Northmore team in Devon, and this is a talk based on the encounter between Jesus and Pilate, which you can read in John chapter 18, verses 33 to 37. So, you are a king, said Pilate. You say I am a king, said Jesus. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. What is truth? asked Pilate. I went into Exeter Cathedral a while ago, thinking I would buy some books for our confirmation candidates. And I was surprised to find that there are not that many religious books on sale in the cathedral. In fact, their section on the royal family was rather bigger at first glance than their section on God. I did let the manager know about my disappointment, but I'm guessing that books about the royals sell rather better. Apparently that's because they have managed to retain a bit of mystique. Most other celebrities seem to have the need to tell us everything about themselves so that we almost feel that we know them personally. The Queen doesn't Instagram her meals or blog about her corgis. They have managed to tread that narrow line between mystery and remoteness, to be different without being superior. Just as well, because royal power now is a shadow of what it was in the days of Pilate and Jesus' conversation. Modern royalty is where it is without permission, and they know, and we know, that if the power they have left is abused or taken for granted, it can be removed in short order. We've kind of got used to that idea. We still have a head of state that is there because they were born into the role, which in most democratic countries of the world would be seen as a very strange situation. But we're kind of okay with it, because we know that in the end, real power lies with Parliament. And we elect Parliament, so the real power lies with us. I want to reflect with you a little bit about sovereignty. There's been a fundamental debate about the nature of power in all Western countries over the last thousand years, which in England came to a head with the Civil War in the 17th century. It's about whether power flows upward or downward. Does power begin with the people who entrust it to those who rule over them, or does it begin with God who entrusts it to a monarch who then delegates it to others. Because we chopped the head off our king and then soon afterwards put another one back on the throne, and because we're English, it's not surprising to find that we have both ideas going on at the same time in our country. On the wall in my study is the license I was given when I first came to Oakhampton. It starts with the words, Michael, by divine permission, Bishop of Exeter, to my beloved in Christ, Stephen William Cook, Clark, greetings. No doubt about which way power is flowing in that relationship. In other countries, in America for example, bishops are elected. And here we elect deanery synods and general synods, but not bishops. In theory at least, they're appointed by the crown. I'm saying all this because we have to make a bit of a leap of imagination back to the first century. If you were a king then, you might have got there by assassinating your rivals or staging a coup, but you would dress it up as God's doing. Your power would come from God, and to challenge you would be to challenge God's appointed one. If you were ousted, it wouldn't be on the basis that you were a bad ruler, but because someone else came along who could somehow make a strong, stronger claim to be God's appointee.
That's how it worked. Power started with God and flowed down. There was no other model. So when Pilate asks Jesus if he is a king, he's asking if he is God's appointee, the anointed one, the one sent to rule the Jewish people. If Jesus agreed, he would be condemning himself out of his own mouth because no other king was allowed but Caesar. And that's why a few hours later when he asked the people if they wanted him to crucify their king, the chief priests of all people reply, we have no king but Caesar. They had bought into the Roman model. I want us to think about what it means for us to acknowledge Jesus as our king. The first thing I want to say is that it is to discover a new kind of authority. For the very early Christians, acknowledging Jesus as king could be a death sentence. The earliest statement of Christian belief was simply, Jesus is Lord. And the Romans were okay with that as long as they were prepared to say first, Caesar is Lord. But for Christians there could only be one Lord. Jesus was not Lord by Caesar's permission, it was the other way around. And many of them went to a martyr's death because they were unwilling to give way. And for us as well to say Jesus is Lord is an act of rebellion. We deny the authority of all the little Caesars that seek to rule our life. All the things we're told to live for, all the people who claim to have power over us, all the forces which purport to control our destiny. And we say, no, you are not the Lord of my life. Jesus is Lord. Any authority you may hold over me, you hold by God's permission. Now, I don't recommend this approach when you get a parking ticket. The Bible makes it clear that we're to respect those who have authority in this world. But in the end, all power is God's power delegated. We can, however, declare that Jesus is Lord in the face of all the despair and depression that surrounds us, and indeed in the face of all the other claims on our life and our loyalty. When people say things are inevitable, we can say, Jesus is Lord. When we're faced by our own personal demons, whatever they may be, we can say, Jesus is Lord. You're not Lord, because Jesus is Lord, and there is only one Lord. And when we're tempted to think in one way or another that we are Lord, that this is our life, that we can live it however we want, we can remind ourselves that Jesus is Lord. We're not, because Jesus is. There is only one Lord. And then there's the issue of integrity. When asked if he is a king, Jesus starts talking about the truth. There's a lot of pretense involved in power. If you're a dictator, you have to get people to believe that you're able to do what you say you can do. As soon as they stop believing that and stop being afraid, you're in deep trouble. By contrast, one of the things that is said about Jesus is that, unlike the other religious leaders, he spoke with authority. There was no pretense, no telling people what they wanted to hear. There was an integrity and conviction about Jesus that drew people to him in their thousands. That was why the religious leaders hated him so much, because he had an authority which they longed for but did not have. So for us to say, Jesus is Lord, is to declare our intention to base our life on the truth, not the lie. We are saying that we want to be governed by the truth, even if that is uncomfortable for us. We don't want to weave a fantasy around ourselves which suits us. We want to know the truth because we believe Jesus' promise 
that the truth will set us free. There are all sorts of practical outworkings of this, but I, the one I want to mention briefly is telling the truth. If we believe that Jesus is Lord, then we should be concerned about the truth, because that's the basis of his kingdom. People should be able to believe that if we say yes, we mean yes, and if we say no, we mean no. And it means believing that the truth is the right way, even if it seems a lie might be better. If you're put in a place where it seems necessary to lie, look for the way out, and I believe you'll find one. To say Jesus is Lord is to be concerned about the truth, because that is the basis of his kingship. So let's go back to the conversation between Jesus and Pilate. There is the Roman governor, the man with the soldiers at his command, and in front of him is the beaten, bound prisoner. Who's in control? Pilate is mocking and fascinated at the same time. He'll never understand the strange people and their weird beliefs. Why is this man here at all? What has he done except offend some obscure religious code and wind up with the wrong people? Yet there is something about him, something commanding, something authentic. That's why he does his best to find a way to let him go. But in the end, he's powerless. The last thing he needs is an uprising. Better to give them what they want. And so he shows himself to be helpless. At one point he says to Jesus, Do you not realise that I have the power to set you free and the power to crucify you? And Jesus replies, You would have no power over me if it had not been given to you from above. Pilate's power came from Caesar, but in the end, all real power comes from God. In the beginning of the Bible, God gives authority to Adam and Eve over the birds of the air and the fish of the seas. They represent us. Authority does indeed flow upwards, beginning with the people and working up to those in control over them. But it's rooted in the source of all things. Jesus, the second Adam, the new representative of the human race, said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. To recognise Jesus as Lord is not an act of surrender. It's a statement of the truth, and as such it sets us free. Instead of being a servant of the false Caesars of this world, we become servants of the one true King. We acknowledge Jesus of Nazareth, who was born among us, who lived, who taught, who died, and rose again, who ascended into heaven and sits at God's right hand as our Lord and our King. And that truth sets us free. May God bless this word to us.